Amen, amen. Well, this morning we get to hear God speak again through his word. So in case you thought it was going to be a voice that came from the ceiling, that is not going to happen. I don't think, at least. <laughs> if you have your Bibles, you turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy. We've been walking through this book uh, for the last few months, and we're nearing the end. So next week we'll finish out 1 Timothy. But as is our practice here at Temple Hills Baptist Church, normally what we do is we open up a book of God's Word, because we do believe that this is God's Word. And so we don't open up a newspaper on Sunday mornings or a web page. We open up the Bible. And we usually start at a book of the Bible and kind of work our way through it until we finish that book. All right, we believe that's the most faithful way that God has given us his word and the, 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 the most faithful way, faithful way to understand it. All right, that's a, a practice we call expositional preaching. We want to read what the word says. We want to try to explain what the word says. And then we want to try to apply what that word says to us. Yep. And so, yes, this, this book that we're reading this morning is an old book. It's an ancient book. It was written thousands of years ago, but it is, it is as authoritative and as applicable today as it was then. Amen. Right? And so when we talk about speak, O Lord, we're not talking about some mystical, mysterious thing. Right. We're talking about God speaking to his people through the authoritative, ongoing witness of his word in writing. Amen. And so open your Bibles if you have them. What a, what a joy it is to have a Bible. To have God speaking to you every day. We got a Bible. Turn with me to in your Bibles. You have, I, got, I got a real Bible. The pages sticking together, a Bible, right? First uh, Timothy chapter 5. And this morning we'll look at verses 17 through chapter 6, verse 2. If you're using one of the Bibles under the chairs, you can find it on page uh, 993. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, we invite you to take that Bible home with you as our gift. We want nothing more than for you to have your own copy of God's word. 1 Timothy chapter 5, starting at verse 17. Paul says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect elders, uh, angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. And no longer only drink water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous. And even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Let all who are under a yoke uh, as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are, believe, are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. As we walk through these few verses in chapter 5 and the beginning of verse 6 this morning, here's what I think is the main point of 
are these verses, the main idea of these verses. God's people honor God by honoring those God has put over them. God's people honor God by honoring those God has put over them. This passage we looked at speaks about authority, people over us. In our passage last week, in the first 16 verses of chapter 5, we saw the responsibilities we have as God's people to care for others in the church. Other members of different ages and genders in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5, and those older members who need special care, widows in verses 3 through 16. Well, here in our passage this morning, we see Paul give more responsibilities for people as it relates to how to treat another segment of people, those in authority over us, both in the church and in the workplace. We are to honor them. And notice how the word honor is, is tied in. It's kind of the textual glue that holds these verses in chapter 5 and 6 together. We saw it last week in chapter 5, verse 2. Paul talked about honor being given. We see it here in chapter 5, verse 17, a, a double honor this due. And we see it in chapter 6, verse 1, again, an, an honor that certain people are worthy of. And so we'll use Paul's charge here to, to honor people in authority in two different spheres, in the church and in the workplace, as the two points of the sermon this morning. Point number one, honor elders. Honor elders. We see that in verses 17 through 25. And point number two, honor employers. And when we get to that section, I'll tell you why I've used employers to describe the relationship in the text of slave and master. All right, so point number one, honor elders, verses 17 through 25 of chapter 5. And then point number two, honor employers. We see that in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Point number one, honor elders. In verses 17 through 25, Paul specifically points to the obligations we have to elders, to pastors. Again, the New Testament uses those terms synonymously. Paul gives four charges in these first few verses as to our care for them. So kind of four subpoints under point number one. How do you honor pastors? First, pay them pay them. Amen. Now, some of y'all are like, here we go. <laughs> I knew it was just a matter of time. <laughs> Pastors out here preaching about money again, trying to get paid. Sadly, I can understand how that might be your reaction. In many churches, the message every Sunday is about money, no matter what the text is. The scriptures simply serve as a springboard, jumping from the words on the page to what's in your pockets. Every passage supposedly calling you to dig deep and even deeper to give more and more and more for the benefit of the pastor. That's biblical abuse. Amen. Using the Bible in a way it's not intended to be used. But friends, don't let biblical abuse Close your hearts and your ears from listening to and submitting to biblical authority. Amen. This morning, 
We're talking about money and specifically paying pastors. Not because it's nearing the end of the year and after looking at my finances, I picked the passage to preach that might produce more personal revenue for me next year. No, we're talking about paying pastors because the Bible talks about paying pastors. And this passage this morning is simply the next set of verses up as we walk through the book of 1 Timothy. And so while talking about a topic like this might be seen as self-serving, I hope you see it more as a display of scripture submitting. The Bible dictating what we talk about. Paul says in verse 17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. That word especially there can be translated, that is, namely. This verse is not outlining two distinct groups or classes or kinds of elders. Some elders who rule, and then a separate set of elders who preach and teach. I mean, the qualifications we looked at for elders back in chapter 3 call all elders overseers. All elders exercise a kind of rule, a kind of oversight over the church. All elders direct the affairs of the church. And all elders teach. Remember, Paul said that every elder needs to be able to teach. But not all elders teach in the same way in the same capacity. There are some elders, some pastors who are distinctly gifted and responsible for the regular, more frequent proclamation and instruction of God's word, who are more ordinarily set apart for the congregate, by the congregation to preach the word and to teach the word. In some churches, that designation is highlighted by the term senior pastor, the brother who normally preaches the word. Or in some settings, it's staff elders who take the weight of preaching and teaching responsibilities while serving alongside other non-staff or lay elders and caring for the church. Certain distinct elders specifically tasked with proclaiming the word. And those brothers, Paul says here, are worthy of double honor. Yes, honor them with your lips. You can tell them, good sermon, pastor and that you've been helped by their preaching. You can honor them with your living by obeying their instructions from the Bible. But also, you should honor them with your giving, with your finances. As Adam mentioned earlier in his prayer, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And one way you show that you treasure the Bible And treasure the faithful proclamation of the Bible is by paying those men who preach and teach the Bible. You pay them not as an act of charity. You pay them for their labor, for their work. Notice Paul says they labor in preaching and teaching. That word labor has the idea of hard, arduous toil. It's the labor that Paul and his readers, living in an agrarian society, would have known well. From people working hard in the fields day and night to produce a crop. 
Paul takes that same idea of labor and applies it to a minister of the word. You know, preaching is not simply a one-hour event on Sundays. I wonder if you've ever thought of a pastor's job or something like that. I certainly have in the past. He got it pretty sweet. All he has to do is give this impromptu talk for one hour, one day a week, and the rest of the day is he just chilling. Maybe that's how some people who call themselves pastors operate. But that's not how it actually is. The sermon that's publicly preached on Sundays is the product of hours upon hours upon hours of private study throughout the week. Reading the Word, translating the Word, meditating on the Word, studying the Word, applying the Word, and repeating that process over and over and over. Metaphorically wrestling with the text and not letting go until God, like he did with Jacob, blesses us. And then standing before the people of God, in the presence of God, and trying to proclaim just a portion of the glories of God's word that you've discovered throughout the week. And then, when it's all over, starting over again and doing it for the next week, and the next week, and the next week. It's a glorious task. Please don't get me wrong. It is a glorious task. But it is a task. It's work. Again, that's not simply my estimation. That's Paul's. He says preaching and teaching is a labor, is intense effort. I think we see a, a few things here. For one, I think we need to recognize that the preaching and teaching of God's word is what's foremost in the life of a church and therefore should be foremost in the life of a pastor, specifically the pastor who's been set aside for that work. A pastor can do other things. He can counsel. He can attend committee meetings. He can fix the building. He can work on the budget. He can coordinate events. He can do community outreach. But a pastor must proclaim God's word. And to do that well, he must work at it. Properly, properly prepare for it. I thank God for you all being a congregation that understands that and that so values the word that you give me adequate time to spend preparing to preach and teach the Bible. I mean, several of you on many occasions have, have offered to, to take some function or to do something, to serve in some way, to free me up to spend time laboring in the word. You know, the reality is, is that a pastor simply can't shirk that responsibility. This Word work is supposed to be work. Far be it then for any pastor to skirt that duty by plagiarizing other people's sermons, stealing other people's thoughts and putting them down and out as their own. If you are the main person tasked with bringing the word to God's people and all you do is copy, paste, and deliver another person's sermon to the people you've been chosen to pastor, then you're not doing a main part of your job. 
then what then are you doing? Saints, I pledge to never do that before you. Don't let any other pastor after me ever do that. The sermons might not be as good as your favorite pastors or preachers, but at least they'll be faithful. The product of personal work in the word for the sake of the pastors and the church's spiritual growth. And for that work, churches should normally pay their pastors, the ones who preach the word. And this isn't simply Paul's preference. This is God's command. Paul grounds his command in in verse 17 that elders who preach and teach should be given double honor with scriptural warrant in verse 18. He says, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. The first quotation is from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. If an ox is doing the hard work of treading the ground to break up the hard soil for you to to get grain, then you don't muzzle that ox after it. You don't shut his mouth up. No, you feed him from the grain that he's worked hard to produce for you. Paul uses that same verse from Deuteronomy in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 to say that what was written then wasn't written for the sake of oxen, but for our sake. He argues in 1 Corinthians 9 verse 11, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much to ask if we reap material things from you? If we've labored to plant the spiritual seed of God's word, then it isn't a small thing to reap material things like money from you. Paul would go on to say he didn't always take advantage of that right. But that did not negate the fact that it was a right and that it was right for ministers of the word to expect payment for their labor. The second quotation in verse 18 It's from Luke chapter 10, verse 7, where Jesus tells his disciples that the laborer deserves his wages. When a laborer works, you pay him for his work. The idea was crucial in Jesus' day, where people lived off of daily wages. So a worker who worked a day's work but didn't get a day's pay would not eat that day. A situation Jesus means to forbid. No, when a man does his work, he's earned his wages. Pay him what he's earned. Now, what's really interesting with this second quotation is that Paul, writing in the first century, refers to another portion of the New Testament circulating around in the early church as Scripture on the same level and as authoritative as the passage from Deuteronomy. You notice that? I mean, everyone held that the Old Testament, right, was authoritative as God's word. But Paul says this little piece of writing where Luke has quoted Jesus in writing is also scripture. Don't let the History Channel or Time Magazine or some other kind of mess that you Google or Wikipedia tell you that the scriptures that we have are a result of some group of men in the fourth century that got together in some back room trying to decide which words we're going to take as God's word. 
early in the life of the church, there was already an understanding of some writings holding the same authority as Old Testament books of the Bible as Holy Scripture. In any case, Paul's point here is that God is the one who authorizes, who commands payment for pastors. Paul's charge for the church then is to obey God. I praise God for the way you've faithfully done that. Me and my family feel well cared for and well provided for through your faithful and generous giving. A good portion which goes towards paying my salary to allow me to serve here full time as your pastor. And as uncomfortable as it is for me to say, that's a good thing and something I want to commend. And not because it benefits me, but because it's being obedient to God and his word. You're demonstrating that you believe that God's word is what gives and what nourishes and what sustains spiritual life. And as God has raised up pastors as one of the primary means to bring that word, that brings that life, you show you honor him and honor his word by honoring those who bring that word through paying them. It's an investment. Not just to bless the pastor, but to bless your souls through the preaching and teaching that faithful pastors labor to bring. Saints, keep doing that. Not only for me, but for any others after me in in years to come. Think about how if the Lord prospers us, we might give to help pay other pastors to give their time to proclaiming the word in other churches in PG County and around the world. The first way Paul says we honor and care for elders, for pastors, is to pay them. We see a second way to honor them in verse 19. Protect them. Protect them. Paul says in verse 19, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Uh, Pastors are often on the front line of ministry. But, you know, the front line can also often mean the firing line. Lead anything and you understand that you take the lead in taking on criticism, fair or not. Uh, Get close to hard or messy situations as pastors are often called to, and you can sometimes be accused of adding to the mess, making the hard thing even harder. The prominent role of a pastor in a church can sometimes bring with it fanboys and idols, a kind of cultic following. But more often what it brings is added scrutiny, examination, accusations and charges. But Paul cautions here, do not bring up any charges against an elder without multiple witnesses. Paul is not trying to to make elders untouchable or unaccountable, but he is trying to make sure that they don't unnecessarily face claimless, unsubstantiated charges. This idea of not bringing up any charges against someone without two or three witnesses comes from the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, we read, A single witness shall not suffice against the person for any crime 
or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a charge be established. It's the same basis that Jesus used when discussing church discipline in Matthew 18. If someone is in sin, confront him face to face. Then bring one or two others with you, witnesses who might substantiate any claims of sin. Friends, rarely is it the case that you alone have the spiritual insight and discernment to clearly see sin that nobody else sees. And that you alone are the only one bold enough to say something about it. Trust that God's spirit resides in other brothers and sisters. And that if there's clear sin that needs to be confronted, that the Lord will make that obvious to others. Don't make uh, baseless charges against pastors based on your personal feelings. Because you feel slighted or hurt. Saints, often the, the, the best case in, in, in that scenario is to go and talk to your pastor directly. Whether that's me or some other brother the Lord might raise up here. But don't go lobbing false charges. And the church is not to accept those kinds of charges. That don't have any weight behind them and don't have the weight of multiple people attesting to them. Protect pastors from false claims so that they might serve freely and boldly and widely without fear that any perceived misstep might lead to their removal. Protect them from false charges. But correct them when there are true charges. That's the third way Paul says to honor elders and care for them. Correct them when they're in the wrong. Now that's perhaps a foreign concept. In a day where if you care for someone, you just let them live. Let them do whatever they want with their lives. But love doesn't just let people destroy themselves and others. Love confronts in an effort to see a loved one conform. You see that in verse 20. Paul says, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Notice here the difference between verses 19 and verse 20. If there's no real sin, Paul means to protect innocent elders from false charges, lest there are two or three witnesses. But if there are witnesses, and charges seem to be true, if there's real sin, then Paul's tune changes. He's not out to protect sinning elders for the sake of an elder's image, for the sake of the church's reputation or bottom line, for fear of public scandal. Paul does not advocate insulating elders who are in sin from accountability. He doesn't want the other elders in the church or the church as a whole to serve as a pastor's PR firm to do damage control in dicey situations. More important than the church potentially losing money or losing members is a church losing its distinct holy witness. And so Paul says those elders who persist in sin should be publicly rebuked before the entire church so that the rest of the elders 
And indeed, the rest of the entire church might fear the same fate and might turn from sin themselves. But notice here just the intentional language. This rebuking only occurs if there's sin that persists. So, so say there are witnesses who bring sin to an elder's attention. Well, if that elder repents, then the issue does not escalate. Now, of course, that de depends on the level of sin. So if it's something that's immediately disqualifying to a pastor's ministry, such as being unfaithful to his, his wife, then you don't kind of sit on that. Now, if it's a blatant sin like that, you bring that before the church immediately. But if it's something that on the first or second or fourth or eighth time doesn't automatically disqualify, then there needs to be room for a pastor to repent. Well, say there's a group of people who, who confront a pastor after a members meeting and claim that they've noticed a habit of being quarrelsome over the past few months, both online and in responding to members in meetings. Well, one of the qualifications for an elder is that he not be quarrelsome. But once he's been made known of that, and the charges seem legitimate, then like everyone else confronted with their sin, you've got to give him space and time to grow, to turn away from sin. You don't immediately bring formal charges to remove an elder after the first instance of a seemingly quarrelsome statement. There needs to be a pattern. And when made aware of it, you don't then seek to remove him the first time he says anything that resembles a sharp statement again. But if there is habitual, serious, widely observable, unrepentant sin in an elder's life, then he needs to be rebuked before all. In other words, he needs to be treated like every other member of the church who is engaged in habitual, serious, widely observable, unrepentant sin. He needs to be taken through the process of church discipline. Again, pay attention to the language. Two or three witnesses must bring a charge. And if sin persists, then after that confrontation, then a public charge should be made before all. Again, it all sounds like what Jesus says in Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen to you, then take one or two others along with you that every, every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, to the two or three witnesses, then tell it to the church. Amen. That's who this rebuking before all is referring to. The entire church. Uh, tell it to them as the last line of action. And the whole process is supposed to have a purifying effect. It should shake any elder up from persisting in sin. It won't be covered up. It will be brought before the church so that you might repent and be spared. And for the church, it reminds them that they should not live in unrepentant sin. If even pastors can be disciplined, then so should, can we. It should produce a healthy fear that keeps people from falling away. And Paul tells Timothy in verse 21 that he's to follow through on these rules to discipline unrepentant sinning elders. 
without partiality, without showing any favoritism. He says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect elders, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging or partiality. Basically, Paul says, heaven is watching what you're doing. All the heavenly realm, they stand in judgment. And so act accordingly. Don't fear man in acting to correct corrupt pastors. Fear God. The last charge Paul gives as it relates to to elders is to fourthly select them carefully. Select them carefully. He says in verse 22, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. We saw back in chapter three, one of the qualifications for an elder was that he not be a recent convert, unless he be puffed up with pride. Here, Paul doubles down on that. Don't be too quick in appointing someone to the office of elder, which is what that act of laying on of hands refers to. We saw it back in chapter 4, verse 14, where Paul says that's that's what the council of elders did with Timothy. They laid their hands on him in installing him as an elder. That this charge flows from the previous statement about needing to to rebuke and correct sinning elders shows that one way to avoid that kind of situation is to be discerning and deliberate in the men you bring into the office of elder in the first place. Take time to vet them. Take time to see their character and temperament, how they act in different situations. Now, Paul doesn't give a set time here, which we like. He doesn't tell us what's too fast, what's too slow. He's not out to be prescriptive, but he is out to put into our minds the danger of operating solely by speed and need. Ask any pastor, any church, and almost 10 times out of 10, you'll hear that we can use all the help we can get. As a solo pastor here for now, I certainly feel that. There are gaps that are gaping. Members and ministries that need more care than I can personally give. There are weaknesses in my abilities that I see more clearly every week. And that I can use other brothers' strengths to to supply what I lack. And on top of all that, the Bible calls for a fully, rightly ordered church to be led by a plurality of elders. In other words, there is a need for more elders. And so the temptation is to go speedily appoint some. But friends, you will kill a church quickly by filling the elder board quickly with men who ultimately prove unqualified and ungodly. And so we've just been slow here in observing men's lives over time, giving them teaching and preaching opportunities, and watching how they handle not only the word, but the authority that comes along with that. Watching how they handle both commendation and criticism. Watching how they care for their family members and church members without the titles attached. Are their homes healthy and open? Are their hearts out to help others? It's not because we think we can pick the perfect pastor. That person does not exist. 
including me. But we want there to be time for godly character and giftedness to play out. And time to see if there are any red flags that pop up. Steph, I heard that little comment. I'm talking about amen. <laughs> Paul tells Timothy, talk to you later at the house. <laughs> Paul tells Timothy, don't be too hasty. Lest you take part in the sins of others. What's that mean? Well, it means in some ways that if you appoint a man to the office too soon who's unqualified or he turns out to be one of the elders in unrepentant sin, then you're partly complicit in that. You share in part of that guilt as not having done due diligence and not taking the proper precautions. Timothy is to keep himself pure, free from such a situation by being patient and selecting elders. After a brief digression in verse 23, Paul explains why such patience is needed in verses 24 and 25. In verse 24, he says, because some people's sins are immediately obvious. They precede them so that people can make the proper judgment. In other words, some people are so evidently sinful that you never consider them for leadership in the first place. The sins of others, however, develop over time. They appear later. After six months, the monster comes out. You ever dated someone, you know how that is, right? They're on their best behavior for the first few months. After a stressful week, the angry, abusive side shows. After the first direct pointed criticism, the immense pride gets displayed. You don't want to be so fast in appointing a man that you fail to see sins that would have shown up had you taken more time. But also on the more positive side, you don't want to overlook an elder in choosing others so quickly who might not have the immediate flash to his life, but whose godliness and good works show themselves over time. And Paul says in verse 25, so also good works are conspicuous or evident. And even those that are not immediately evident cannot remain hidden. I can't tell you how many times I've been encouraged by stories of a member's quiet but sustained faithfulness here over time that I only hear about months and sometimes years later, calling and caring for other members, meeting up with another member faithfully to, to help through a certain situation. You might miss those good works that are testified about eventually if immediate fruit is all that you're after. Time is a good test to a man's fit for pastoral office. What develops shows up as months pass, as years pass. Your patience in carefully selecting pastors is ultimately for their and the church's good. Now, before we move on here, a quick word on verse 23. It's a weird verse, right, by itself, but I think it's just a digression from Paul's point to Timothy to keep himself pure at the end of verse 22. It's like it sparks in Paul's mind something he wants to tell Timothy anyway that he's been meaning to tell him about the sake of what he's doing for the sake of purity. 
It's like Paul is writing, you know, keep yourself pure. And like, oh, oh why, why are we on the topic of purity? Stop only drinking water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and frequent ailments. Now, some of us will abuse this verse and be like, well, Paul say here, a little wine with every meal, right? That's not what he's saying, right? Uh, what he is saying, though, is Timothy, take care of yourself. Water in first century cities in the Roman Empire was often contaminated. And so a fermented drink like wine would sometimes be used to purify it. It seems, however, that Timothy has purposefully abstained from wine, perhaps as a caution to not be given to much wine, and thus himself be disqualified from being a pastor. But Paul here gives him freedom. Not only freedom, he, he, he commands him, he, he recommends to him that for the sake of his health and his ability to pastor well with no physical limitations, that he should drink a little wine for medicinal purposes. He need not fear a little wine making him impure, nor did he need to abstain from it as some sort of uh, religious ritual as the false teachers were doing and their kind of asceticism. No, rather, Timothy was to use a little wine as a good gift from God to heal your health conditions. Now, if we had time, I think there's, there's all kind of good stuff you can get from that verse about its implications for our understandings of medicine, our understandings of how God heals, our understanding of, of what makes us pure and impure. Remember, Jesus said, nothing that comes inside of you makes you impure. A little wine won't make you impure. It's what comes outside of you. All right, so I think it's all kinds of good stuff. You can talk to me afterwards. I, I'll have some thoughts. Right? The main thrust, though, however, of, of these few verses of 17 through 25 that Paul wants us to grasp is this. We are to care for and honor elders by paying, protecting, correcting, and carefully selecting them. And in the process, we honor God, who gives elders to lead his church. God is the one who gives elders. Amen. And as we respect them, as we honor them, we show that we honor him. There's a second sphere of authority of leadership that Paul calls the church to care for in the, the last two verses we'll consider, and that's employers. And Paul's charge here is to honor them. Point number two, honor employers. Now, I'm not trying to engage in revisionist history here trying to soften language and make a hard pill easier to swallow by referring to employers and employees here, when clearly chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 talk about masters and slaves. I remember my daughter reading a book one time where it referred to American slaves as, as something like the friendly workers of some Southerners. It's a wild distortion of the truth. But what I'm trying to do here is to give a picture of what this slave-master relationship was like in first century Roman society so that we don't automatically read into it the slave-master relationship of 17th and 18th and 19th century America slavery. In fact, the slavery practice in America is explicitly outlawed by Paul earlier in this book when in chapter 1, verse 10, he lists enslavers. Literally, man-stealers in the list of sinners, right? So while many, sadly, in the 20th and 19th and 18th and 17th centuries, lean into the Bible to find warrant for their slavery, 
The Bible just gives no warrant for that thing, right? The Bible explicitly calls man-stealing sin and those who have the property of that stealing sin, right? So let's be very clear there. Right, but there's a difference. There's an immense difference between the slavery of America of modern times and the slavery from the Bible days. The slavery back in the first century could, yes, be brutal at times, but it wasn't at all race-based. Neither was slavery lifelong. Right? Slaves could purchase their freedom. And many slaves were, were paid for their work, something that never happened in the American slave system. Many slaves owned property. Many slaves held positions of prominence. They were doctors and government officials and lawyers. So, so the closest application for us to these verses is not the American slave experience, but is more an employer-employee experience. Now, in Paul's day, there, there were a lot of slaves. Some estimates say that they were roughly 30% of the entire Roman population were made up of slaves almost 50 to 60 million people. So when Paul talks about slaves and masters in 1 Timothy or Colossians or Ephesians, he's not doing so because he means to give constant biblical approval to the institution. He's doing so because many of the members of the churches he's writing to would be slaves or masters. It was a widespread thing in society, and so Paul, like any good pastor, is speaking to his people at the level of what they're at, where they're at, Amen. right? As we noted, when we looked at slaves, when we studied Colossians, slavery is never endorsed or condoned in the Bible, but it is regulated. That is, the slavery that existed even in Paul's day, though sinful, Paul wrote, not with a focus to overturn it, which in the society at that time, that the church really had no power or voice to do. But the focus was on how slaves and masters were to relate to one another. Amen. Paul calling believers to act like believers, even if conditions don't change. All right. That's what we see in these two verses in, in verse 6. In verse 1 of chapter 6, Paul addresses a believing slave and his relationship to an unbelieving master. And Paul's charge, honor him. Honor him. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. This person is over you, and so you should respect him because of his position. Regardless of what you think of him, you should honor him. It's similar to what Paul says in, in, in Romans chapter 13 of our submission to the government, even though the government at that time was the evil emperor Nero, right? There was still a way that God's people were to behave, right? Honor him, regardless of what you think. And for what purpose? Why were they to honor these men who employed them, these people over them? Well, it wasn't to get a raise or to get in the boss's favor, the purpose was more evangelistic and apologetic. So that, Paul says, the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Amen. Notice how Paul views these bondservants, these workers. They function firstly as slaves to Christ, as his ambassadors. They might work for these other men, but they represent Christ in their work. 
And based on how they, how they work, their output and their attitude, it would reflect something about Christ and about the teaching about him, the gospel that they believe. I wonder, do you adopt that mindset in your work? That what you do and the way you do it are a witness to others, Amen. including your boss. So when you show up and tell people that you are a Christian, that's great. But just know that what you do speaks volumes, often far louder than what you say. You honor your employers by faithfully doing your job. Christians should be the hardest workers, the most diligent workers, the most joyful workers. A boss shouldn't be complaining. My worst workers are those Christians. They are lazy and unreliable. Every morning they show up late, saying they had to get, get good prayer time in before they started the day. And when they do finally show up, they spend all day trying to tell other people about their faith instead of finishing their task. But I'm afraid to fire them. They already said they're going to say it's because of, of their religion. I hate their religion. Brothers and sisters, that should not be. We want Christ to be honored by others. But that often only happens as he is honored in our lives by us honoring our commitments and honoring those over us. We should labor hard and well in our jobs. Not being lazy or insubordinate, not grumbling and complaining, but having a work ethic that matches our witness so that others might see and ask the reason for the hope and the hard work and the happy disposition and the helpful assistance that we display and that we might testify of Jesus with integrity. It's because of Christ and what he's done for me. He loved me and gave himself for me. He died for every single one of my sins and rose from the grave so that I could be saved. And so now I want to live every second of my life in every setting he's put me in to make much of him. Amen. To show his saving power in my life. You want to tell your boss and your, your co-workers, you, you want to make a big witness to them. You want to show them, right, that, that who they see isn't who you naturally are. I used to be as bitter as you are. I used to be as complaining as you are. I used to gossip about things in the office like you do. But Christ Jesus has invaded my life and made me a new creation in him. And so though I don't love my job, I could take another job, really. Though I don't love my salary, I really want more money. I love the Lord who's given me this job, who's given me this money, who's given me this boss, and I'm going to honor him every single day I'm at work by living for him here. Sometimes we want to live in such a way before unbelievers to make Christ attractive to them. A sweet aroma of a life they simply cannot understand. How can you have that position? that paycheck and be that happy only Jesus Amen. only Jesus 
In verse 2, the situation is different. As Paul tells believing servants to honor their believing masters. He says those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. Amen. Paul says, look, your responsibility as a worker does not change because your master, your boss, is a fellow believer. Right. You know how we get. You get real slack. You find out you got something in common with somebody else, right? But Paul says that shouldn't cause you to slack off, to think that you can just chill and coast along. That shouldn't cause you to disrespect your boss because you figure, well, that ain't really the essence of our, our relationship no more. You ain't really my boss. You're my brother. We go to the same church, bro. Paul says that's true. Christ has transformed and normalized relationships. In him, we are joined together into one family with no one more important or less important than the other. And Paul says every member of God's family is indispensable. But if you're brothers with the boss, then that actually should cause you to serve them even better, even more intently, because you work for somebody you love and you rejoice to do good to them. You work for their benefit to serve them. Amen. Our attachment to Christ should be so rich and so deep and so strong that it drives us to honor all those that Christ has placed over us. That's the main theme of all the verses we've looked at this morning. Christ has put people in places of authority over us. And our response to them is actually a larger reflection of our response to him, who is our ultimate authority. So how much do you value Christ? The one who died for you and rose from the grave for you, the, the one who forgave all your sins and he wants you as his own. Amen. How much do you value him? Do you honor him? Well, you show it with your life with how you honor those in authority. So honor those in authority, both in the church, elders, and in the workplace, employers, Amen. as an act of ultimately serving and worshiping Amen. King Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you how expansive your word is. It covers every facet of our lives. Your word is wide and deep and strong. Lord, your word tells us how we are to live. Lord, we pray for faithfulness to live before you, our Lord and Savior. Lord, we thank you that any effort that we give, any amount of money that we pay, any, any, anything that we might offer is but a small semblance as it compares to what you've given us, what you've paid for us. We remember, Lord, as we close our time this morning, that Christ Jesus paid it all for us. And so all to him we owe. Help us do that faithfully. We pray that in Jesus' name.